we'd invite you to grab a Bible and open it to James chapter 5. Do you ever get commercial jingles stuck in your head? I mean, that might date me. If you're young, there used to be commercials on TV. They're not always there. In fact, I would confess to you, my, rare, my family rarely sees them. But for some strange reason, there's one that's been in my head all the time for like 20 years. About once every two weeks, it just pops in. And I start singing along. Would you like to know what it is? <laughs> of course you do. I'll start, you finish. I don't want to grow up. Why? Why does that come to my head? I have no idea. I literally can count in my entire life twice I went to a Toys R Us. Once, my mom was looking for something as a gift for somebody else. The whole time telling us, you don't buy things at Toys R Us, it's too expensive. But we had to find this one thing for like a cousin or something. And I don't even remember why the second time. But the irony of that entire campaign is that toys are so fun that you should never grow up. That there's this idea that as you get bigger, you should not mature. I suppose the heart of their campaign is at least the suggestion that being grown up is bad. That being mature is boring. And therefore, you should maintain being a kid as long as you can. Well, that is to say nothing of toys. We still have some, still like to play with them. But what I would like to suggest with you on the topic of maturity is that there are many people who take that view of the faith. That they should not grow up. That they should not mature. That they'll have more fun if they don't. And while most people would never say that, they would never confess that, if you watch our practices, and what I mean by that is if you watch our day-to-day lives, I mean, if you took a, a snapshot of our Sunday afternoons or a snapshot of our Monday mornings or a little picture of our Thursday evenings, I mean, if you look at our lives, are we taking seriously the call to become mature in Christ? Because as we've started into this book of James... A book that from the very beginning we've professed is a book written to believers in Jesus Christ. James kind of puts that out there that there's this idea that you would know who Jesus is and so he's going to call you to maturity. And so we've seen that over and over and over. James calling us to maturity that we wouldn't be content with where we are with Jesus, but we'd want to progress. So we've called this series Portraits of Maturity that we might have some glimpses, we might have some different views to see what does it mean to be grown up in the faith and to understand that that's not merely biblical knowledge, but that we would grow to understand the tensions that we would see in our whole lives over the will of man versus the will of God. You see that contrasted through the whole book and we'd get a greater picture of what does it mean to live every part of our life submitted to Jesus. So James puts it like that through the whole book. That you and I would find joy in suffering because we trust Him. We'd find joy in suffering because we know He's up to something and we know we can trust Him. That you and I would become doers of the Word. Not just hearers, not just people who hear And don't move, but we're practitioners of the way of Jesus. Because, beloved, that's maturity. 
that we would look more and more like Jesus. James would put before us that we would see people not for how they benefit us or how they move us forward, but we would see people as they are, as the beloved people of God, literally made in His image, and that they deserve dignity and honor always because they belong to Him. That's maturity in James. That we'd understand the dangers of our tongue. That we'd walk with some awareness of the destruction our tongues can cause. And that we'd give consideration that submitting our money, submitting our resources, and even our time to Jesus Christ is maturity. To recognize His ways are not our ways. His timing is not our timing. That's James in this book putting maturity to us over and over and over again through those first four chapters. So this morning as we continue in chapter 5, and I'll confess to you early on, I broke off two pieces, we'll preach next week, we'll get that at the end. As we try to start to finish chapter 5, James is going to show us maturity, and specifically our maturity as it relates to the body of Christ. And what I am going to mean to that, what I want to submit to you is that's maturity in the church. And I want to take a step further than that to understand that's maturity in the church, being the local church, being in this context, maturity and Calvary. Because I think that's what James wants you to hear. I think that's the context which James will be writing. We'll get to that here in a minute. Because there's some really, really rich stuff here that James wants to put before you. There's some low-hanging fruit that James wants to put before you because he wants you to see and understand that to hear and not do is immaturity, but to do it, Beloved, if we were faithful with these things, the richness of the community that we would experience and live in and the beauty of Jesus would become immense to us. So we're going to step into that this morning. Let's pray that we might be called up. Pray with me as we get into God's Word. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You so much that You have given us Your Word. For your word was not created by the will of man. But Father, we have your word because you spoke and you carried men along by your spirit. That we might have your word and in it we might find the gospel of our salvation. Father, would you build us up? Would you edify us this morning with your gospel? That we'd be reminded that we're sinners. And you resolve that at the cross. You sent your son to take our place, to pay for our sins, that we might receive your righteousness. Father, thank you that you've given us the church, the very local body we're sitting in this morning. Father, you have an intention with your body. You have an intention with the church that you've given to us that you would use it in our lives to mature us, to grow us up, that we could love one another more and more. So Father, would you be at work in our lives this morning? We trust that you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have you ever given thought to why Jesus gave us the church? Why God the Father, in His infinite plan, in all of His creation, thought, God, I'm going to send my son to save you, to be sufficient for you, and 
I'm going to give you a people to walk with. Have you ever thought about that? Consider what the author of the book of Hebrews writes. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Church, consider this. Even in the first century, it was the habit of some not to meet together. The author is challenging that. In The author of Hebrews is going to challenge that. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. How do you do that? By meeting together. And encourage one another. How are you to be encouraged? I mean, how does God the Father and His eternal plan desire to encourage you specifically? By meeting together. Beloved, there's something about our meeting together. And I mean that literally. And I mean that here. Literally. There's something about our meeting together that the Lord sees essential for us, beneficial for us, something about it that's supposed to mature us and encourage us and edify us and hold us together and keep us consistent so that we can last in the faith, so we might be faithful. And there's something about us that we're willing to neglect it. And what we're going to see in James 5 is that call to maturity. So we might have a bigger picture of the church. I outed myself last week. I confess to you that as a younger, less mature believer, I had a habit of going and showing up five minutes late and leaving ten minutes early. That was my habit of church attendance post-college. And the funny thing about that is, is as I would show up late and leave early, I was always mad at the church. Man, they don't even know me. Man, they can meet my needs. Man, that, that, I, don't get, I don't get anything out of that. Might it have been that it was my practice of the church that was problematic? Okay, everyone should say yes, Ben. It was my... It was me. It was my experience. That was immaturity. I was going to be a consumer. I want to take what I want, and I'm going to try to be fed by the thing that I get, and I want it to be enough. But what I'm wanting to suggest to you this morning is, it's not, and it won't be, because that's not the church, that's an event. You weren't called to be a part of an event. You were called to be a part of a church. So consider what James is going to exhort us to here as a matter of maturity. Let's look at the text. James 5, verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Friends, if you were to read through this carefully, this last section, you would find three among you's. 
The first in chapter 13, the second chapter 14, the third chapter 19. We'll cover that next week. But what these among you's do for us is you should pick up that the you is plural. From time to time, I reference the y'all version of the Bible. It is helpful because it makes plain the fact that yous are plural in the New Testament. Why that's helpful is because we often read our Bibles and think you is me. Is this writing to me? Is anyone among you suffering? Well, here I am. I suffer. Must be writing to me. No, if you actually understand what James is writing, is anyone among y'all suffering? Like it's written to a group context. Because I want you to hear this. I want you to understand this literally. When James writes his letter, he's writing intending that it will be read in churches. So that somebody would stand before church and say, is anyone among you suffering? James is writing to a church context. And I don't want to belabor that point, but I think so often we miss it. As if we could be faithful to carrying out this part of the body just by going, I'm suffering, I should pray. I think we need to see it in the church context. So that when James says, is anyone among you suffering? We would pick up from chapter 1. James has been talking to us about suffering over and over and over again. You should remember from chapter 1 that suffering comes from testing and trials. Those are very related. The idea that sin might be knocking at your door. The idea that persecution could be knocking at your door. The idea that you might be making dumb decisions that are having ramifications on your life. All these things can cause suffering. So James says, is anyone amongst you suffering? He's actually giving you this broad category. This reality that, of course the answer is yes. Of course it is. Thursday morning I woke up and realized that my uh, dishwasher was dripping through my floor. Suffering! I was so mad. Like it's one thing, if it's another, it's not that, it's something else. Spent a couple hours yesterday, finally get that thing fixed. Praise be the Lord. Look down in my shower this morning, and sure enough, in the fiberglass, there's a little crack. Mm, good. I needed that today. It's exactly what I hoped for, for my Sunday afternoon. Is anyone among you suffering? Yes. Then you should pray. They who are suffering, who are in trouble, who are lacking, who have no sufficiency, should pray. You should turn to the one who is sufficient. You should turn to the one who can provide for you. You should be a dependent. And would you believe that in your suffering... And in your praying and in your striving to be dependent that you might edify the body. I promise you it would. I think that's what James is trying to get to here. A practice, a communal practice. You're suffering. You'd seek after the Lord. You'd do it somewhat publicly so that we could be edified. We could be encouraged. We could look at it and say, 
Man, Matt's having a hard time. Matt's seeking after the Lord. God's providing for Matt. It's awesome. Jesse's going through a struggle. He's going through a hard time. God's providing for him. That's awesome. Ben's going through a hard time. I'm not sure. But I've got Matt and Jesse's testimony. I, I, that ought to help carry me along, right? James is trying to get us this communal picture of the church. Is anyone among you cheerful? The word here is actually like this boisterous happiness. Is anyone here really, really, really happy? Let him praise. Let him sing praise. Again, James is exhorting the church. If anyone here is really, 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 really happy, praise God. Why? Because friends, if you are really, 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 really happy, there's really two places you can point. One, man, look at what I did. See what I accomplished? Man, that's awesome. I want you to know how, how good I'm doing. And the other is, God, you're so good. You are so very gracious. I don't deserve this. It's not what I, it's what I hope for, but I don't deserve it. God, thank you so much for these blessings. I want to praise you. I want to look at you and I want to exalt you because I want you to get the credit for this awesomeness I'm experiencing. It's a chance to point to God and to understand that our worship is a confession of our dependency and His goodness to us in our dependency. It's to recognize I wouldn't be here without you. There's an old, I call I heard it this way, I'll say it again. There's an old Texas pastor story about a turtle on top of a fence post. If you ever see a turtle on top of a fence post, the one thing you know is he didn't get there by himself. Beloved, that's our lives as believers. Turtle can't crawl to the top of a fence post and sit there. You and I can't either. We have to live dependent on the Lord so we seek Him when we need Him and we worship Him and give Him all the credit when things go well. Why? Would you believe that edifies and builds the church? So finally, James says, is anyone among you sick? You should know the ESV translates the word sick. But in a broader category, you would find that this word has a broader meaning than just physical illness. The word actually means to be weak. If you do a word study, you'd find it is used for illness, but it's also used to describe weakness in faith or weakness in conscience. So if James is giving us this broad category, is is anyone among you weak? You're struggling. You're doubting. What are you to do? They're to call for the elders of the church And let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. 
Two thoughts. The first, I don't want to belabor it. When you read your Bible on your own and you're in your own house and you say, pray to the, go to the elders of the church. You don't have that at home. You literally cannot carry that out outside the body of a local church. Cannot. The idea of elders, it's a biblical title. It points to men in a church who've been called towards leadership. It's not just old people. Doesn't mean call grandpa. It's this idea that you would call the elders of the local church, the men who've been affirmed by your local body, and ask them to pray and anoint you with oil. Love, I, I want you to know the elders do this. Probably three or four times a year, sometimes more, sometimes less, somebody calls, they ask, or frankly, we're aware of it and we invite them. Hey, would you like to come to the elders meeting? We want to pray for you. And we're even willing to anoint you with oil. Why? Because the Bible says so. Want to be faithful to the text. Why is that important? Because, beloved, James is trying to give you this mature view of the body where we are your family. That the the body of Christ are those that you turn to for support and prayer and suffering and celebration. That we're to be here for one another when things are going really well. And we're to be here for one another when things are going really poorly. That in our meeting together, we'd be encouraged and stirred up. Back to Hebrews 10. And James keeps going, verse... 15. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Read James, this is one of the challenging verses. It's a, the nuanced verse in this section. So let's tear it apart. Remember when I said the word sick isn't physical, just physical illness. It actually points to a variety of weaknesses. What James is suggesting here, that in your weakness, if you seek the elders for prayer, we should see that, that this is tied to verse 14. It immediately follows it. So that when you go to prayer, elders who pray for you, and they pray in faith, believing that what God has for you is His glory and your good, What James is suggesting here for the tired, the weak, the discouraged, the overwhelmed, the barely hanging on is that your time is not wasted. In fact, it's useful. James says it's, it will save the one who is sick. You should know the word here save doesn't point to salvation. The word save here points to refreshment. It points to restoration. It points to the idea that you're headed down the wrong path. And you're encouraged. You're edified. You're refreshed. You're built up. You're sent a different direction. And look at the promise. James is full of the promises of God. We'll be mindful of them. And the Lord will raise him up. 
So, beloved, if you're weak, seek prayer. God will meet you there. He's promised he will. I'm trying to be careful about this. I'm not trying to belabor the point. But you have to see all of this in the context of the church. You have to see all of it in the context of a local body. You have to see all of it in the context of Calvary, if Calvary is your church. If you're visiting, we're talking about you, the church you came from. James wants you to have this picture. That you would be willing as a sufferer, as a weak one, to go to your elders and ask for prayer. Because some things can happen in those times of praying. If you follow along at 15, the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. You know, if you read through your New Testament, you're tracking along, you should pick up the fact that unconfessed sin is actually really, really, really hard on your soul. Actually to the point where it can cause physical issues in your body. That unconfessed sin is a burden you're not ever intended to carry. Like ever. Such that you might show up saying, I'm weak. I'm suffering. I'm not, I'm, I'm doubting. And you sit and you pray. And in that process, it comes out, you know, you've never forgiven this person. You're still holding this against someone. You need to be reminded of the gospel. You need to be built up by the gospel. You need to be reminded that the Lord Jesus who went to the cross to save you forgives your sins and cleanses you from all unrighteousness. You need to be saved. And I'm not talking about salvation. You need to be refreshed. You need to be encouraged. You need to be restored. Friends, it's possible if you came to the elders in weakness, your sin would be exposed. So let's think about that for a second. Is that a bad thing? Honestly. Is that a bad thing? Only if you're trying to hide your sin. Only if you're trying really hard to hold on to a crippling burden that God, through His Word, and by sending His Son, has told you is too much for you to bear. If you want to endure that, it's a bad thing. Otherwise, there's an enormous freedom that comes with our sin being exposed. There's an unburdening that happens with our sin being exposed. There's a light that is cast into the darkness that dispels the darkness when our sin is exposed. Now friends, consider this. And really consider this. There is not a soul in this room right now or who's listening to this podcast, who or who will ever listen to it, who is not a sinner. And I don't mean like barely a sinner. 
I mean, there's no one here that's not like a wretched sinner. Like all of you should say amen. Like there are times everybody should say amen. Like you are all wretched sinners. Amen. Man, I hate it. We get this picture in our mind that everyone else is doing pretty good and it's just me. And if I, if I let it out that I'm struggling, all the people who've got it together will look at me like, I got struggles. He's the weirdo. Rather than understanding the gospel, rather than being refreshed by the gospel, rather than being built up by the gospel. You know, one of the reasons why our sin needs to be expressed, exposed, is because we're weak. It's because we're discouraged. It's because we're depressed. It's because we're barely hanging on. And we need to be reminded of the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ. We need to be reminded of the gospel. We need to practice the gospel. We need to be washed in the gospel. But there's a a way in which confession of sin is like taking a shower. You should do it every day. Or you'll start to stink. James is saying, is exhorting you, you're suffering, go to the elders, we'll pray for you, that you might be saved, the Lord will lift you up, if you've committed sins, they might be forgiven. I told you our elders practice this. Now I want to assure you, I know all of our elders as personal friends. I've confessed sins to most of them. They, slash we, do not stand to condemn you. For if we could condemn you, we ourselves would be condemned. The elders stand to remind you of the mercy and the grace of Jesus. To wash you in the gospel that is our only hope. Because the hope is, the hope in any of this, beloved, we can be so convinced of the hideousness and the awfulness of our sin and miss the preciousness of Jesus. And that's what we need to be reminded of. That's what we need the community to remind us of. That's what we need one another to remind us of. And so James gives us verse 16 in the context of the local church. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you might be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Therefore, James is standing on all the previous stuff 
You always have to ask, why is it therefore, therefore? David's trying to point you to the gospel. And he says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Now I want you to hear this because I think the church needs to hear this. This is an imperative. Meaning, it's a command. Meaning, if you submit yourself to Jesus Christ, you call Him Lord, and you say, I want to follow Him, that's what you should do. It's not a suggestion. It's not a recommendation. It's a command. Now we have a good master. We have a good master. And so we should understand when God the Father who lovingly sends His Son Jesus to die on the cross and sends His Son the Spirit to build us up, to encourage us, to edify us, and to inspire the Scriptures. When the Trinity sees to it that a command lands in Scripture, you ought to think about the fact that it's for your good. Like your spiritual good. Like the Lord God in His infinite wisdom thinks this is really healthy for you. Thinks you'll be unburdened. Thinks you'll be blessed. Thinks you'll be edified. You'll be encouraged. You'll be built up. I can't come with bigger words. It's a good thing. It's a terrifying thing. But it's a good thing. Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another. There are two parts there. That he would speak to the community. He'd speak to the church. Confess your sins to one another. That is, be willing to be vulnerable. Why? You're guilty. Is it possible, it's possible, that other people would be encouraged by your vulnerability? Yes. We used to tell our college students, when you do evangelism on a college campus, there are three things that can happen. One, you could come across somebody who's never heard the name of Jesus and get a chance to share the gospel for the first time. It's a beautiful thing. Secondly, you can find Christians... You can find who are wandering around who don't have a spiritual home and need encouragement, need edification, need to be built up. It's a beautiful thing. But when you confess your sin to somebody, it is a that moment where you're willing to step out and say to somebody who has not quite found their path, who's trying to figure out, is this a safe place to be vulnerable? I mean, I just want to encourage you, this is a safe place to be vulnerable. And I'm going to encourage you by practicing this. Now, can that go sideways? Of course it can. It's gone sideways on me. Your friend might not be trustworthy. Might have been the wrong person to confess to. They may not be able to handle it. And yet, as is true with most of the Scriptures... The challenge is your faithfulness to the command, not the fruit of your faithfulness. Can you be faithful to it? 
You confess your sins to someone who goes the wrong way, you could decide, ah, last time I tried that, I got burned. I will never do that again. Beloved, the Scriptures would call that immaturity and disobedience. Is that hard? But don't miss, God has a great, sweet plan for you. He wants to build you up, encourage it, and edify you. He wants you to be unburdened. It's got a second part. Pray for one another. It's possible somebody's going to come up to you later and say, hey, can I confess a sin? You got to think about what's your what's my role here. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Oh yeah, pray. That's what I should do. That's your role. That you should be willing to accept one another's shortcomings with mercy and grace. You should meet them with the gospel. Because that's what we receive. And Jesus Christ is the gospel. It's what we've got is the gospel. James is trying to help us. He's trying to edify us. He's trying to build us up. He's trying to push us to a mature view of community, a mature view of the church where we don't try to hide. But rather we see one another as spiritual allies in the spiritual journey. When I lived in Memphis, from time to time, I got together with an older gentleman named Sam. Sam was probably 30 years my elder, uh, exceedingly disciplined, just a wise man. I remember asking him once, Sam, I just feel like I need to mature. How do I mature? Is it Ben? What do you think like, maturity looks like? Well, what do you mean? What do you think maturity looks like? Why well, I would think it looked like like having my quiet time every day. Yeah, and what? It probably looked like praying with my wife more often. Okay. What else? Sharing the gospel. What else? We came up with five or six things. You know what Sam said? Now you've got your list. Just start doing that. Just start doing that and you'll become that. Like if you just follow your list and like and you do it for like two or three years, then you're gonna be the guy who did it for two or three years. Just do it. Practice it. That's how you get mature. You practice spiritual maturity. So what does it look like to confess your sin? It might look like grabbing a friend after the service and say, hey, can you sit with me for a second? It's okay. There are people who always sit in here after the service. They always do. If you're teaching a Sunday school class, somebody will cover It'll be fine. It'll all work out. Your kids running around the hall being crazy? So are mine. It'll be fine. It's okay. Take a moment. Don't be distracted. Don't let Satan convince you not to. Take a moment and say, I just want to share a couple of my struggles with you. That's what it could look like. It could also look like Sending a text to a friend after this afternoon. Hey man, can we get together for coffee this week? I'm free on Tuesday. We have coffee on Tuesday. It can look like a lot of things. 
It could look like getting together with somebody that you regularly get together with and just saying, hey, we get together regularly. And I, I just need to, this to go a little deeper. I just, I need somebody I can confess to so I can be reminded of the gospel. Cause I don't remind myself of the gospel very well. It can look a lot of ways. But what it doesn't look like is forgetting. What it doesn't look like is not practicing. What it doesn't look like is walking away and saying, I'm not doing that. That's what it doesn't look like. Friends, we're encouraged to pray for one another. You should pick up that in verse 16, he's not talking about the elders of the church. He's talking about the church, the one another's, the people sitting next to you. He's talking about you. So if you wonder, does it matter if I pray for somebody? James writes to you. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. Pastor Ben, I'm not righteous. Really? Do you believe in Jesus? Of course I believe in Jesus. Then you've been declared righteous. There's righteousness to be found in no other way other than by the blood of Jesus. You believe in Jesus, you've been declared righteous. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. You're not sure if your prayer works. God wants to correct you. Verse 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. What's God trying to do? Trying to help you see that you and Elijah are a lot alike. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. God doesn't point to this subjectively, doesn't point it to it allegorically, points to it literally. Think about Elijah. He's a lot like you. Prayed. Now we can work in the nuance that clearly it was God's will that it not rain, right? We can get all theological in our mind. Awesome. So is it God's will for you to refresh your friend in the gospel? Always. Always. Is it God's will that somebody would confess their sins and be reminded of the forgiveness of Jesus Christ? That He's faithful and just, will forgive their sins and cleanse them of their all unrighteousness? Is that God's will? Always. Do you have what it takes to pray for one another? Yes. Over and over and over again and in droves because of the completed work of Jesus. James is calling us in this last section as he's been pushing on us in lots of areas. He now pushes us and our relationship with the church into this idea that we'd be a, a real community to one another where we could love and encourage and uphold one another. Where we would pray for one another and confess sin to one another. And we'd even go to the elders and ask for prayer. He gives us this picture 
that we might become mature. Is that hard? It might be. But beloved, that's what we strive for. That's what we should strive for. Is to have a mature relationship with His body. That we wouldn't be consumers. We'd be participants. I don't intend to make a habit of quoting Twitter. But I will quote a tweet for you now. Dane Ortland, who wrote the book Gentle and Lowly, yesterday tweeted this. I want you to consider his thought as our closing. What if we all walked into church tomorrow, and along with attending to the Word, engaging in worship, and all the rest, purposed to do two things. Find one trusted friend to unburden a present sin. Two, find five others to encourage. Two things to do. Church history has a word for this. What's the word? What's the word? I was struck by his verbiage in regards to sin. Unburden a present sin. Beloved, you're carrying a weight that you were never intended to carry. You're shouldering a burden that is more than you can bear. And God sent His Son Jesus to pay the price for it. And He sent you His people so that you could confess it. I think we need to be mindful of maturity. And I think we need to be mindful of what James is exhorting us to here. That more and more and more we could give up being a church consumer who's looking to absorb and strive to be participants who pray and praise and confess and listen and pray. That's what James is calling us to. There's two last verses in this section. We're picking them up next week. How do you respond to those who wander? Peeled it off on purpose. We're in a walking now in days and in a culture where more and more and more you're going to see people walk away from the faith. And we need to have an understanding what to do with that. We'll be preaching that next Sunday. Let me pray for us. Gracious Father, we are so thankful for the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus which saves us and forgives our sin. It's by the blood of Jesus we're justified. We're declared righteous. It is by the blood of Jesus that our sanctification is fueled, that we are made righteous. Father, would you be at work in each of our lives calling us to maturity? Father, mature not just in character, but relationally. Father, that as we wonder, how do we interact with the body? God, it is not in your good divine will that we just sit here. But Father, you have purposed and intended that we would be more than a family to one another. Father, we could encourage, we could pray, we could confess, we could hear, we could accept, we could listen, we could love. Father, there are so many one another's in the New Testament you intended for us to fulfill in a local body. 
Father, would you help us? And would you grow us up? And you would mature us so that we might love one another so well. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.